0: Hello and welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. And this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week we talk with a different creative Mississippian. We talk to artists, musicians, creative people, as well as people who help promote the arts in their community. Today our guest is Christopher James Ray. He's a resident conductor at Opera San Jose and a Mississippi native. Christopher, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Larry. Thank you for having me. So Christopher, you are you've been out in California for a while, but you are a native of Mississippi originally.
1: I am. I'm from Summerall, Mississippi, but I, I've been here in California
0: a little over two years. Tell us about what your tell us about your current work and what you're what, what you do there uh in San Jose. Okay, yeah, I'm uh
1: the resident conductor at Opera San Jose. Uh and in normal times that means I would conduct some performances of everything, but uh, we're not really doing anything in the theater right now. Um, of course, I'm also still doing some freelance work. I'm assistant and assistant conductor at the San Francisco Symphony and um,
0: other uh, freelance opportunities as they come up. Maybe you could just kind of get us started and, and kind of go back and talk about kind of just how you got started. Like, just in, in, in the beginning, you know, growing up in Summerall, is your family um, musical? Do you have other musicians in your family? What What role did music play in, in your family and community life when you were growing up? Well, I,
1: I can't say I have a particularly musical family. Um, my older sisters played the piano. They took piano lessons, and that's what made me really want to take piano lessons. And I'm sorry to say they, they kind of quit after I got going, but... Uh, That's really what drew me to it. And then uh, music played the biggest part uh, in our family and life uh, at church. We went to First Baptist Church Summerall and, you know, were there every time the doors were open, they say. And I pretty early on started playing for church services and then I played the organ as well as I got a little older. And then then I started working at churches from then on out, really, um, playing the organ or the piano for different services, and then later directing choirs, things like that. Um, of course, as in school came band and choir, and that's sort of what put me in the pipeline
0: to study music in school. And were you, uh, d- did you start uh, piano or another instrument as a, how, how young were you started uh, in, in learning music?
1: Yeah, I think I was six when I started the piano, um, our the music director at our church, his wife, uh, Miss Lynn, sort of my second mother, <laughs> she from six years old had to deal with all of my problems until I left high school. Uh, and then I believe the organ around 13 and uh, the trombone in junior high, just once you get going in band.
0: And did you have kind of an affinity for opera or classical music while you were growing up, kind of junior high, high school in that era?
1: Uh, Not at all. I I didn't even really know about opera. Um, I saw my first opera, I believe, my freshman year of college. We went on a choir trip. Mississippi College is is where I went to undergrad. And uh, we took a choir trip to New York, and I saw an opera there, uh, The Barber of Seville. And that wasn't really the one that got me hooked. It was a few months later, uh, the Met Live broadcast in Pearl at the movie theater. And I saw... uh, Madame Butterfly. And I was just really taken by it. And so I went back to my teachers at MC and I said, "Uh, I really want to do opera. Can you, can you tell me more about that? And they had connections with Mississippi Opera and I started playing for rehearsals at Mississippi Opera. And then um, after grad school, that was my first professional production. Mississippi Opera hired me back to conduct um, Skiki and Pagliacci.
0: But while you were at Mississippi, at Mississippi College, you were uh... You, were you a performance major? What was your what were you doing in the music program? Mm-hmm.
1: I was a, a double major in piano and organ at the time. I ended up only finishing the piano because I midway through really decided I wanted to be an opera conductor. Conductor, and so I had to focus on what the things were I needed for uh, conducting
0: in graduate school. And so I didn't finish the organ degree. <laughs> well, what did it? What was it about? Can you talk about what it was about the that that initial seeing that that production that kind of just turned your head so quickly like that?
1: Yes, and it's I think what uh, most artists are trying to do when they create it, is to create this type of response in the audience. And uh, what I recall was sitting there and just being overcome by the emotion of the character. It was when butterfly, uh, was, is staring off into the distance, waiting for Pinkerton to return, and the audience, of course, knows, well, you know, he's either not coming back, or when he comes back, it's not going to be good, and she has this hope, and this dream, and Suzuki's next to her, and she's, of course, showing that this is not going to be good, and I just remember being so overwhelmed by her emotion, and... I think in the coming the following months that really uh synthesized within me that this is a way to uh create empathy in audiences and in community and culture that um if we can tell the stories of other people on the stage that those in the audience might be able to empathize or, or see the world through another person's eyes uh take a walk in someone else's shoes so to speak and uh Yeah, I think that can be a real agent for all sorts of positive things in society. And yeah, so I went from then on. I want to do that whenever I have a performance. I want to make at least a handful of people in the audience uh, be overwhelmed uh, by the experience of the story on stage.
0: You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. Our guest today is Christopher James Ray. We're speaking remotely with him. He's the resident conductor at Opera San Jose, and he is a native of Summerall, Mississippi. So talk about um, kind of Mississippi Opera, the, the, the organization Mississippi Opera that's based here in central Mississippi, has been here for many years, does a, you know, an annual season of productions. Talk about their role in kind of you know leading you to your eventual you know profession.
1: Yes uh, as I was saying my uh, my organ professor Dr. Nup at Mississippi College uh, he worked at Galloway Methodist with um, the chorus master of Mississippi Opera and that was the real connection so I started playing for those chorus rehearsals and then in that same season they needed someone to play for the main stage rehearsals to play the piano and so I started playing for that and I pretty sure it was deflator mouse i was playing for deflator mouse and in those rehearsals i realized what i really wanted to do was what the conductor was doing and so i spoke with him and i said hi i would like to be a conductor how do i do that and he said well you gotta you gotta learn how to conduct so he advised some programs some summer programs where i might get some initial experience and to conduct whenever i could to create things to conduct for myself, and of course, keep up my piano chops because that's a real uh, way into the opera world is assistant conductors often play the rehearsals. And even if you're not playing the rehearsals, you'll need to play so you can coach the singers and help them learn their music or um, develop their ideas about the music. So it went from there, and those two seasons, my junior and senior year of undergraduate,
0: I was also playing for the rehearsals at Mississippi Opera, and and for thus for those of us who are kind of outside that world, talk about the differences between being a you know a concert pianist, which I guess was kind of your initial training, and then working as in the in the opera world as a instrumentalist. Wow, uh, that might be a whole different segment. So, of course,
1: concert pianists uh, they're they're really focused on their their solo work their whole uh, concept of the music and perhaps sometimes performing with an orchestra uh, or or other ensemble members but um, yeah they're focused really on that solo repertoire and as you mentioned that's that was what I was learning at first in my undergraduate degree is all of the solo repertoire that pianist or organist would need for fundamentals uh, but then for the opera it's it changes pretty drastically in that you're not there for your own ideas as the pianist usually you're there to facilitate the rehearsal process essentially stand in for the orchestra until the orchestra arrives so you play all the rehearsals while the singers learn their music or learn their staging of uh, what they're going to do on the stage until the orchestra arrives there's also a lot of coaching that's involved so you you learn the singers parts you learn all of the languages and then at the piano, you play while the singer is in the
0: room and you help, help them learn their music. Talk about kind of the role of a Mississippi Opera is a, is a smaller company and, uh, you know, compared to something that's in the big city. But kind of talk about these, you know, your experiences there and then kind of around the country. What how does how does a group like Mississippi Opera fit into kind of the, the bigger ecosystem nationally in, in terms of for, for professionals?
1: Well, I, I was very, very fortunate to have that, those multiple opportunities at Mississippi Opera. Um, looking back, I realized that coming from a small place, whether it be Summerall or then Mississippi College or Mississippi Opera, was a huge advantage. I, at first, I thought it was a disadvantage because, you know, you think Juilliard, Curtis, Metropolitan Opera, that's the place to be. But when you're first starting out, uh, those places are not going to give you any experience. These were small enough places and still good quality places you know I feel like I gained a good education at Mississippi College had good teachers um but the opportunities were much greater for me there I was able to I mean I I don't think any other larger company would have hired a student in undergrad to play their rehearsals they would have flown someone from New York they you know so I had the benefit of coming out of undergrad with professional experience with having worked with professional conductors and singers who were working at larger regional companies. Um, It's hard to say right now how everybody fits in because of the pandemic, no one's really working. And you can see there's a shift that some companies have, well, I mean, the Met is a good example. They haven't produced anything in the pandemic. And then smaller companies, uh, I feel fortunate to be at San Jose. Our, Our general director has found a way for us to perform fairly constantly even though we're under some of the strictest protocols here in our county in california so i think there might be a little bit of a realignment after the pandemic those who have continued to produce or found ways to create content online or in person but uh, around the country my main experience it started out with um My teacher that I met when I moved to Florida State for graduate school, Carlisle Floyd, he's a composer, but he was teaching me piano, and I started working as his assistant and then traveling with him when he would go uh, to work on his operas when they were being performed. So I went around with him to places like Sarasota or Salt Lake City, San Francisco, and I would be working for him, but meet everyone in that realm, and then that paved the way that when i was ready to start working i had all of these connections um through him and that yeah that's where i started i think my i came here to san jose because ha- i had come to san francisco uh, with carlisle and met all of their music staff some of which um, also overlap with san jose and so when they needed someone they called and that was my introduction to the regional opera world and then i've just been working to build, build that network and up to larger houses as well.
0: This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Welcome back to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey and our guest today via remote is Christopher James Ray. He's the resident conductor at Opera San Jose in San Jose, California and a native of Summerall, Mississippi. So um, uh, last segment we were talking about your kind of undergraduate career and you mentioned a little bit about your graduate career. So you went to Florida State and people would say Florida, you know, top Florida State, Tallahassee. Of course, it's the the Seminoles and and the great it's it's like football. football tradition. <laughs> but but opera. <laughs> well, believe it or not,
1: uh, it is one of the largest opera programs in the country. Uh, I believe only two state schools have larger programs: uh, Indiana and Michigan, and then maybe maybe a couple of conservatories. But it is a huge opera school and uh, a lot of wonderful singers, especially in the last couple of decades, have come from that program. And uh, I was led there by Kristen Gunn, who's a Meridian native, and she was teaching at Mississippi College but had just come from Florida State. And she introduced me to Douglas Fisher there, who, who runs the opera program, and I started right out um, because they are one of the very few programs that have um, opera conducting in mind. It, the, the degree is called Opera Production and then you can focus in coaching, conducting, directing. So there's actually a, a curriculum for conducting opera, and that's
0: pretty rare. And and Florida State is also the home of uh, the, the composer that you were speaking of earlier, right? Yes, Carlisle
1: Floyd. Actually, he was he was retired. I mean, he's 93 now, so he was definitely retired when I was there. But um, he taught there in the 50s and 60s and that's when he wrote his most famous opera Susanna which premiered there and then went to City Opera and on from there and then he moved to Houston where he had a a big career with Houston Grand Opera and the University of Houston Um, but he had retired back to Tallahassee Uh, his wife's family was from near there and just before I arrived his wife had passed away and uh, we were doing a big concert in honor of um, a donation he had made to Florida State and he expressed to my conducting teacher that you know he didn't have a lot to occupy his time since his wife had passed and, and he would be interested in taking on another student. And so I just started studying piano lessons with him privately. And this was in addition to my normal curriculum at the university where I was conducting operas and assisting on operas. Um, I would go once a week and have a lesson with Carlisle. And then um, shortly thereafter he started using me as an assistant when he needed extra, like as a musical assistant, uh, when I would travel to do opera productions with him and um, sort of liaise with the conductor, between the conductor and Carlisle when he had notes or changes he wanted. And he also is, um, he has some hearing loss. So he, I was sort of active as He's like, can you hear the oboe there? Can you hear the, this? You know?" And I would
0: say yes or no, and we'd go from there. Talk about his his importance within the American opera tradition? Because I, I wasn't aware of him, but I was reading up on him, and he has a very significant kind of role in, in the 20th century opera, right?
1: Yes. Um, while the opera world is fairly crowded with composers today, uh, there wasn't a large world of American opera 50, 80 years ago. And, I mean, of course, we have some very famous composers like Barber and Minotti and uh, people like that. But uh, I believe Carlisle's, his sort of nickname is the the father of American opera. And that's not just because he's composed a lot of operas that have stayed in the repertoire. The most notable ones are Of Mice and Men and um, uh, Susanna. And he's uh, nominated for a Grammy for his most recent opera, which premiered in Houston a few years back. So he's still going at it. But he also uh, was the president of the uh, National Endowment for the Arts for a number of years. He uh, was influential in starting Opera America, the National Opera Conference. So he also invested in sort of the infrastructure of opera in this country and um, mentoring not only conductors or composers, notable composers who have studied and worked with him, but Directors and singers and all sorts of people he has mentored throughout the years, uh, who have made the opera world bigger and better than it was fifty or sixty years ago.
0: So coming into a, uh, a rehearsal hall or, or some production with him is like coming in with the, you know, with the president of the opera of the opera. You know, like it, he's a, a major dignitary. I would imagine that carries a lot of weight. It was,
1: yeah. Certainly a, a seal of approval to arrive with him. And I, yeah, I, I, don't, I never took that and don't take that for granted. That, um, yeah, just, just by
0: hiring me, he, um, he gave me a gift career-wise. And I'm sure you learned so many things from him, but maybe you could just pick out a couple that in particular that, that have really helped you kind of as you've started your career. Well, the main thing I think of is a musical. Uh, Thing. He always says that
1: the music has to come from your gut, and that sounds like nonsense, I guess. But it isn't. It isn't nonsense. And about this this tension, this backward tension, like stretching a rubber band, and that's especially important in his style of music, but also in styles that I later came into, came to love, and got to work on, um, especially German Romantic, Wagner, things like that, where you you have to have a forward momentum that isn't um, unrestrained. It has to have this feeling of like a glacier, you know? Um, And I feel that that is something he gave me from his um, lifetime of experience that would have taken me a lifetime to understand if he hadn't in those short years when I was studying piano drilled it into me. And I believe it gave me a slightly more mature interpretation than I would have otherwise have had if he hadn't really forced me to understand music in the way that he saw it as a 90-year-old man. Um, and, of course, I I still do things differently now and then, or there are certain composers that I feel like, well, that doesn't apply as much to their, to their music. Um, but that's the first thing I think of, that he really... He gave me that. And the other is to take my applause, if you will. I was uh, somewhat shy of attention and not a shy person. I've always been fairly outgoing. And I think partially it was how I was raised. You don't want to be uh, proud. In fact, my uh, pastor growing up, he would say, if I can be proud without being sinfully proud, et cetera. But uh, I think that was really something playing for churches, always growing up. You never wanted to make a show of yourself. Uh, and he, he identified that on day one, that I would be very embarrassed by being told I was doing well, things like that. And one day I came for a lesson and he sat me down and said, you're going to have to get over this. like, And if you need to realize that you're not being proud by saying, I've worked hard, I've done something, and I've done it for you, the audience and then accept their praise for that you're actually you're robbing the audience what you need to do is come out and show them your appreciation it's not pride it's uh, appreciation for what they've given and that they in fact allowed you to come and bear your soul before a few thousand
0: people that's great that's great this is the Arts Hour, and I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Christopher James Ray. He's a native of Summerall, Mississippi, and he is currently the resident conductor at Opera San Jose. Um, so leaving, kind of going out of, um, just curious about kind of the, the career track. Tell us about, so So you finish, you've had all these great experiences both here in Mississippi and in in Florida, but how do you make the leap into kind of the professional world? What's 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 the what's the career track for an opera conductor?
1: Well, uh, connections and preparation are all I can say. But uh, Timothy Myers, who at the time was the music director of North Carolina Opera, and uh, he's now—I'm going to get his title wrong—but it's artistic artistic consultant or something with Austin Opera in Texas. I'm sorry, I. I can't remember the title. Um, but he's a conductor who studied with my same teacher at Florida State. And my teacher connected uh, connected us. And so right out of school, he hired me to assist on the whole season at North Carolina Opera, which was, I think, three operas and a concert or something like that. And um, and then back subsequently. But that, I mean, that was, uh, again, a gift. He He gave me a stable season to start my first year out, and then I could start planning for my second season instead of always just looking a month ahead. Um, not to mention, it was standard repertoire, cozy, bohème, the operas that are being done all the time. And Timothy Myers himself uh, was already on the rise, conducting at Houston and you know other great companies, and now um, heading up the music in Austin. So people were coming to see him, managers, singers, directors, and then I would get to meet them along the way. So it's it was all about really building and also maintaining your network and letting and then of course when you show up you have to do a good job and you have to have a reputation for doing a good job so that people say he always comes prepared or he's he's easy to work with and that sort of thing. Um so I think those are the two things really working the network that I had created in college, and then continuing to build uh, from
0: there. What's the role of the assistant? What's kind of your day-to-day function within the, within the, the company? Well, um, when you're
1: freelancing, which is what I was doing first, you're really just coming to do one show. So I would show up and sometimes play, sometimes conduct the rehearsals if the conductor isn't there, take notes for them, take diction notes let just listening and writing down anything that needs to be fixed or if you're playing you play and take notes uh, when the orchestra arrives you continue with that same process basically and whatever the conductor might need if they need some work done on the orchestra parts and then the the next there, there were sort of three jumps that had to happen one you're at the piano and you're an assistant and then you have to get people to start hiring you as the assistant slash cover conductor, not playing the piano. So that's a step. And then after that, you have to get people to start hiring you like as the cover, but give you a performance. And then you have to get people to hire you and you're the conductor. And I I guess I'm happy to say, I feel like I finally turned that corner where, you know, unless it's someone like San Francisco Symphony, Michael Tilson Thomas, um, a, a big name conductor, um, or a big house or a repertoire I need to know and haven't conducted before, people will hire me to conduct, and I don't have to assist as much. Um, and when I'm assisting now, it's so worth it. You're at, at you know, San Francisco Symphony or Bayreuth or somewhere where you're working with people who are you know, later in career at the top of their game, and you have so much you can learn just by being in the room with them. Right, right.
0: We're back for our final segment on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Christopher James Ray. He's the resident conductor at Opera San Jose. So you you made your kind of um, have gun will travel kind of air t- time time of moving around the country, doing this, and so now you've landed on the West Coast, and you've you're at Opera San Jose. Tell us about this company and and kind of this distinctive stuff that y'all been doing out there. Yes, um, well.
1: Opera San Jose is known nationally, really as being so far the only company that has dedicated itself to a sort of European style of resident artists. And it, historically that had been only singers and they would have a group of however many singers and those singers would live here and stay here and do the whole season. They would do different roles and different shows um, much like theater troupes, um, and or theater ensembles and that legacy has lived on, but been a bit expanded. Our our new general director, Corey Dastour, um, had the vision that, you know, opera has a lot of different people that make things happen. And it's not just the singers up there. So um, I was the first resident conductor, member of the resident ensemble. And there's also a resident director, stage director now as well. And so we come and we're just on staff which is a sort of european idea to have multiple conductors or directors on the staff rather than using so many freelancers and um, when i first arrived before the pandemic hit i would conduct two performances of every show so um we we do six here and we do four shows six performances of four shows and so i would do two of those and whatever else was coming around that was needed and then i would continue freelancing as well, but base here. And in the pandemic, that model has turned out to be a real godsend because uh, we all live here together <laughs> we can be a bubble. We can quarantine together. We uh, have weekly testing, uh, COVID testing. And so that has allowed us to have a director, a conductor and a handful of singers to put on projects. And early on, it was clear, to, I, it wasn't clear to us, but it was clear to the, the powers that be that the pandemic was going to go on a lot longer, uh, especially for our sector. We would not be able to put a few thousand people crammed together in a theater with no windows open or something. You know, it's we were going to have to change. And um, we had a legacy gift from Fred Hyman. Um, he... Passed away early on in the pandemic or shortly before it started, and he left money to create a digital media lab. And so Corey went to work and she cleared out our major rehearsal hall and turned it into a film production studio, essentially, with all sorts of new HVAC, positive pressure, air scrubbing, virus killing technology. Uh, It sounds like, you know, I'm just making things up, but all of those things are were in, were put in place and um we started with dichterliebe which i played at the piano with eugene brancoviano singing and that was sort of our test we brought in a film crew all the covid safety um and testing and produced that and then uh the follow-up is or was three decembers jake heggie's three decembers um, we actually recorded that back in october uh, then it was released in December after all the post-production, and it's still available online now to view. It's a pay-what-you-will pay, pay what you will, ticket price, and that turned out to be uh, unexpectedly important. Um, we had a cast of singers coming in, and then the lead mezzo-soprano couldn't come, and so... Corey put out feelers and we got Susan Graham, which was quite a feat. I mean, she's possibly the most famous mezzo soprano on the planet. And she came to San Jose to lead this production. And uh, I was honestly, I was like, well, they're going to replace me. They're going to have to get a famous conductor now. And Corey was like, no, no, the, the project hasn't changed, but now Susan Graham is joining us and this is going to be amazing. So it, it, it raised the project to a a new sort of level of international attention and getting a lot of reviews that we probably wouldn't have received, um, not only in normal times, but in the pandemic without Susan. Um, But a lot of the issue, it's a small opera, but we thought it was small enough for the COVID restrictions, and it was not. The orchestra is only 12 people. The cast is only three but when the county said we could only have 12 people in the room, okay, so we needed a new orchestration. One did not exist. So I took the full score and I created a two-piano version. Um, so that got us down. There was just three of us at the front of the room and three of us on the stage. But then you add in the film crew. I mean, it was just uh, the logistics. I'm glad they weren't my nightmare, but they were somebody's, um, Of If hair and makeup need to come in the room people have to leave the room so that they can come in even though it's a huge room everyone getting tested isolation um they were bringing us our food to eat in separate places no going out no going to grocery stores no going i mean true isolation during those filming weeks and it was all worth it we got to perform again when pretty much everything was closed down and um i understand the show has been very successful i don't know all of the Statistics on how many people watched, but uh, it's still going strong, and people are enjoying it. And we're gearing up to do another film production
0: right now. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Borsi, and our guest today is Christopher James Ray. He's the resident conductor at Opera San Jose. The other thing, I guess, about in addition to having this, you know, rock star uh, singer in it, is that this is what this was a uh, this was the debut of this. Of this piece as well, right? I mean, it. it, it this is the first time it had been produced, or it, am I correct in that? Uh, the pieces had been done for it was about ten
1: years old. But this would this would have been the premiere of the reduction, reduction. the oh, orchestra okay, okay. reduction that we did. Yeah. Um, in fact, I had conducted this piece at Florida State okay. uh,
0: before with the orchestra, so it was good that I already knew it. But and there and there's a kind of making up video that that that's online mm-hmm. that kind of shows all the special processes that you guys went through. And I saw, so the, the, the composer was local as well. Is that right? Then. So he participated yes, he lives here in San Francisco. So how was that having mm-hmm. the, comp- you know, a lot of times you're dealing with, vo- you know, long gone composers, but <laughs> the composers right there and kind of giving you notes tell, tell about that process. It's
1: uh, it's not only special, but very, very nice. I, I think I was saying earlier that, um, in recent days, past five years, I've been able to work with a lot of living composers, and it's a it's a treat to have them there. They're not there to cause problems. They're thrilled that you're doing their work, and they, too, want it to be the best it can be. And so we've, if we all give credit for positive intent, uh, it goes really smoothly where you can turn to him and say, I don't know, that, that might not be working, and then his answer will... Oh, now it works. Now I was thinking of it incorrectly or in a different way that wasn't working. And uh, having done it before, I, I without the the benefit of having Jake there, um, it was a it was a really enlightening experience this time. Things I approached that I found to be problematic before, he had an answer for that was actually quite simple. I just hadn't been able to see
0: it. Wonderful. And and maybe you could just hit on a couple of things in terms of the process, like uh, like you and the musicians were like behind giant pieces of plexiglass and some some big challenges in terms of like just hearing things. I would imagine.
1: Yes, I mean, in fact, we started our my first meetings with the singers were on Zoom, uh, and they I would kind of play a note on the piano and and they would sing and because you can't really play along with the delay, although we're beta this is a different story but we're beta testing this zero uh or low latency streaming with a stand a lab at stanford oh, wonderful. and um i mean it's going well but i don't know when it'll be commercially available but we didn't have that yet so we were using zoom and then they finally came into the room but we have we have to be way spread out we're all wearing masks and then came the first rehearsal and susan raised her hand and she was like you've got to take your mask off i can't see your face and i need i can't I can't do my job without seeing your face. So we're like, okay. So we went on, I think I now own one version of every clear mask on the market. <laughs> You've tested the costume. <laughs> yeah. The costume department went and ordered just everything they could find. And I'll tell you, they don't really work because they're just, they fog up and then you can't breathe because they're made of plastic. But we did find them. It was like a double, double shield thing. I was wearing a shield from my forehead down and from my chin up. Okay. Uh, every day and uh the singers wore masks when they weren't singing um or didn't have to be on the stage singing but yes there were huge plexiglass barriers between me and everyone and the pianists and each other and the pianists and me and the pianists and the singers and uh it's you wouldn't think it would create such a challenge because I wasn't completely like sealed in the box uh, but it really it creates an extra distance between you and the people you're working with.
0: Well, i imagine just the singers are kind of not only watching you for conducting, but they're trying to read you in terms of what you're trying to, like, information you're trying to tell them through your exactly. face. Exactly, and
1: also the, the text. Uh, you know, they're memorized, and in many opera houses, you have a prompter, a separate person who's down there giving special cues and, maybe feeding the next line, well, I needed to do that as well. And if I, if my face is covered, <laughs> you can't really see what the next word's going to be. Um, but we, we made it through that, and I was able to, for the filming itself, I didn't have to wear anything because we had been isolated and tested, and I was in a plexiglass box. So I was able to take that off, and they could see me with just the glare of the plexiglass
0: between us. Well, that's, I mean, you've, you, you've built some, some solid, uh, uh, experience that I guess a lot of conductors have yet to experience. <laughs> so I, I think you may have the jump on some Hopefully people. Hopefully they won't have to. Yeah. Well, who knows? <laughs> so, I mean, I know it's hard to talk about the future for any performing artist, but what, what kind of things, uh, maybe, maybe if not things that are on the books, but things that you're, you're hoping to do in, in the coming years that you, you'd like to share with the, with the audience?
1: Yes. Um, I will say in the last couple of weeks, I have felt a bit of hope that our industry is is thawing out a little bit, that people are starting to plan what next season will be and the season after that. And so there have been little inquiries coming in that make you think, oh, well, there is going to be a future. Uh, And of course, San Jose will still be here and I'll have whatever projects come around. Um, But in a larger sense, I'm really hoping to decamped to Europe for a few years um the opera houses there allow so much more experience they do so much so many more operas within a season and I think spending a few years over there would be very important for my development and so I'm that's where I'm focused most my energy right now is finding a position similar to what I have here but in a German opera house where they do much much more repertoire and then after a while there um come back and uh, I don't know what's after that, but that's the next yeah. thing I'm looking forward to is um, yeah, a, a position
0: in Europe to just build, learn operas, learn, learn, learn. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Even if it was remote, we really appreciate it. For people that want to learn more about your work and, and maybe, uh, uh, see this this recent production uh, you know uh, by by access to it tell tell us uh, tell the listeners where they could go to uh, access this
1: yes for uh, three Decembers and other projects ones that are coming up as well you can go to operasj.org at operasj.org and um, for my schedule and just sort of general keeping up with what's going on it's my full name christopherjamesray.com excellent
0: Christopher, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app.